There are some uh, quotes that are at times attributed to Gandhi um, that you may be familiar with. You may have heard these before. Gandhi um, once supposedly said this. He said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Or at another time, he, it's attributed to him, to him that um, he had at a time explored Christianity, and he was very, you may know, he was very influenced by the Sermon on the Mount in terms of his own beliefs about nonviolent protest. And exploring Christianity, he said, I'd become a Christian if it wasn't for the Christians. Um, Intervarsity, I believe it was InterVarsity, did a study um, back in the 1960s about questions, you know, a co- campus um, ministry doing questions about evangelism and was exploring the sort of questions that non-believers had about the Christian faith. And in the 1960s, during the heyday of modernity, um, questions that people had were things like, does God exist? Is the Bible true? Did Jesus really raise from the dead? Can miracles happen, etc.? And then more recently, uh, more in our, in our day, even a decade or so ago, I think it was, uh, same organization found that the questions that non-believers now ask today are quite notably different. They're not about sort of these questions that have to do with propositional truth claims. Is Christianity objectively true? And they more have to do with actually the community of Christians. Questions like, are Christians bigoted? Are they hateful? Why are Christians so hypocritical? Questions that have to do less with the truth claims about Christianity and more with, you know, is it, is, are Christians just trying to say stuff to kind of get, to have, to hold power and privilege? Or is the community even living out their own values? which is very much reflective of more of our culture right now, which is concern for matters of justice and, and, and community. And these instances show us that there is an assumption, whether it's of Gandhi or whether it's even of people around us, to some degree, that love is an essential part, an expectation that people have of the community that claims to be defined by its adherence to a message of love. People know if you're a Christian, you claim to believe in a gospel of love and there's an expectation that that should define the character of the community that holds to that message. Well, in our passage today in 1 John 4, 7 through 11, the word love or derivatives of the word love, to love as a command or beloved, things like that, is used 34 times, actually in, sorry, 4, 7 through 5, 5, this next major section. 34 times those words are used. That is a little over one and a half times per verse. 1.7 times per verse, which is more than any other passage in Scripture. The word love showing up. And our passage today, verses specifically 4, 7 through 11, The message is this, that as we have come to know God's love for us in the gospel, we must love one another, specifically our fellow Christians. 
Or we may put it this way. Those who have come to know the God of love, those who have come to know God's saving love, will be known by their love for each other. If we have come to know God's love for us in the gospel, we must love one another. And as you hopefully were able to pick up one of these handouts, they are in the back if you need one. Um, I tried to show you a bit of the structure of this passage. It's, very, it's just a very helpful structure, and it will help you kind of see the organization of how John is organizing his thoughts. So if you look at that with me, or if you're at home, um, that was emailed, that's on the website under the announcements, or was emailed out in the announcements. You should be able to click on a link. You'll notice that the passage begins and ends with parallel, beloved and beloved. It says beloved at the beginning and at the end, and both times he gives that command, love one another. So the passage is sandwiched with beloved, let us love one another. We ought to love one another. And then in between, you have two smaller sections. The first one has a for and a because statement. So both of those kind of giving the reason for this is why, because this is why. And again, there's a sandwich of to whoever or anyone statement. So for, why do we love one another? For love is from God or because God is love. So those are kind of saying the same thing because here's the reason. Our God is a God of love. And then therefore, here are the corollaries. Anyone who loves or whoever loves has been born of God and knows God, and then the second time, does whoever does not love does not know God. So that knowing God shows up twice. There's parallelism there. Okay? And then the second subsection is in verses 9 and 10, where he begins both verses with a, in this. In this. This is how we know the love. This is, this is the demonstration of God's love. And that phrase, Love or love of God shows up in both of those cases. This is how the love of God is manifest. And we get three that statements. This is how it's manifest. That God sent his son. Or again in verse 10, but that he loved us and sent his son. So the sent is being shown in both places. We get a so that in verse 9 and a to be. Here's the purpose that he was sent. So we would live through him to be the propitiation for our sins. So there's parallelism there. And then, of course, in 10, we also get the negative, not that. So that this reason and not that this reason. So anyways, I want to show you those details so you can kind of see the structure. And hopefully, if that was a lot to take in, this handout will kind of present those parallels. John is being very deliberate in why he's saying what he's saying and structuring the passage around this idea that those who have come to know God's love Here's the reason. Here's how it's demonstrated. They will love one another. And it all could be summarized in verse 11. Beloved, if God has so loved us, what I just got done saying in the preceding verses, if this is true, we ought then to love one another. And so let's begin by looking at that second point that John gives us, the demonstration of God's love. What is this love we're talking about? In verses 9 and 10, read with me. We get the two in this statements. In this, verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. This word manifest is what he used in chapter 1 to talk about Jesus showing up on the scene. Literally, God's love is, is manifesting in a person. God has become flesh. And this is how. That 
God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this, again, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son, here's the second reason, to be the propitiation for our sins. And so John says we see the greatness of God's love. And notice some of the, the ways that we see the greatness of his love according to these verses. We see the great initiation of this display of love. It's not that we loved him. It's not that we were the ones pursuing this relationship, but that he was the one who took the initiation. That any love that we show him is merely a reflection of his love for us. It's not that we loved him, but that he loved us. And the word sending, used twice to show, very reflective of John 3.16, God so loved the world that he sent his only son. God is the one taking action here, not us. We are recipients. So we see the great initiation of God's love. We see the great value of the gift of God's love. That God sends his very unique and precious son. He uses that word only, just like in John 3.16, his only begotten son. This word that shows the value of God is not only taking initiation, but what is he sending us? He's sending us his very son. The great cost of this loving gift a very sacrifice, that his son came, was sent to do what? To be the propitiation, this word that has the idea, of it assumes Christ's death for our sin. He loved us even to the point of dying for us. We see the great, if I can make up a word, undeservingness or unworthiness of those who receive such love. We were not just undeserving, we were actually hostile to God. Again, we, we, were not, we were not lovers of God. It's not that we love God. As, as Paul says in Romans 5, that is actually while we were enemies with God. It's while we were spitting in his face that he died for us. It's those who needed propitiation. To say that Christ has propitiated us assumes that we were under God's wrath in need of that wrath to be satisfied. And then we see the great riches of this salvation he's given to us. He came to give us life, he says in verse 9. Or as he says elsewhere, to make us born again, to make us his children. We were once children of the devil, as, as John says elsewhere. Now we've been actually made bona fide children of God. That we've been propitiated. We now have peace with the God of holy, righteous indignation towards sin. And now we know God. We know the living God, he says. Incredible, so incredible are these statements that John actually says not simply that God has loved us, but that God is love. God's love is so close to the heart of who he is, his very nature, his very character, that John can actually say God is love. It's so essential. It's so at the heart of who God is. Love, in other words, is the essence of how he relates to us and how we experience him as his children, as those who have been saved and captured by his love. And this is all the more amazing, remember, when we, when we realize that in chapter 1, not only we get these two statements, God is, in the book, not only is God love, which he states twice in this chapter, I believe. But if you remember in chapter 1, he had told us that God is what? 
light, a God of absolute purity, of absolute sinlessness, no no stain whatsoever. And so God can be 100% love and yet also be 100% light and show love to those who are dark because he has righteously satisfied his wrath in the propitiation of Christ, that Christ bears that sin so that our darkness has actually become light in him. And so for John to speak this way, even in this passage, for John to speak about how we have been granted life, how we have propitiation, what does that assume? It assumes a previous state of death. If we've been made alive, it assumes that we weren't alive. To come to know God means that at one point we were blind and we were, we were ignorant to God. To be propitiated means at one point we were under God's wrath which was ready to strike us and it assumes a need for us to go from a previous position of being unsaved, under God's wrath, blind to his love, dead in our sins, to being made alive and at peace with God. And so if you're here today and you have not yet placed your faith in Christ to receive that gift of salvation, we would encourage you as a, as a church, this is the heart of who we are. This is the only reason that we can come to God. We would implore you also to, to, to put your faith in Christ, to receive the propitiation as he used that word in, in chapter 2 where he says that we, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation, the one who satisfies God's wrath. He dies on the cross to pay for our sin and thereby remove any wrath that God has towards us. We experience God's forgiving love. And so as we move to verses 7 and 8, we kind of work our way back up. He says that if we've come to experience this love, if the love that we just got done looking at and just briefly meditating, just wading in the shallow end of it, like not even plumbing the depths of it, if you've come to experience that love as someone who believes in Jesus, then you have come to know this God of love, you yourself will necessarily be characterized by love for others. So look at verses 7 through 8 with me. He says, Beloved, let us love one another for, here's the reason, Love is from God. And whoever loves, it shows that they've been born of God and they know that God of love. Verse 8, again, anyone who does not love, on the other hand, here's the negative side of it, well, apparently they do not know God. They don't know the God of love because why? God is love and if they knew the God of love, they themselves would obviously be loving towards others. To come to know the God of love, to come to have actually experienced his saving love necessarily means that we walk away changed from that experience as those who then, his love flows out of us as we love other people as a result. He he goes even further actually, not just that if we've experienced love we will love others, but he actually says that love is from God. All of love originates with God and it comes from. From him, which makes sense because why? In verse 10, he said, It's not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Clearly, isn't starting from us. We're not the ones who are who are actually exercising love initially. It's all it's all coming from him. He's the one who loved. 
And so love comes from God. It always originates with God, which means that if love originates from God and not us, if we do exhibit this sort of love for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, it's only because we've been infected by God's love. We've come to experience God's own love. The love that originates with God has has captivated and captured us. And so even our own love that we show others, if we are actually living out the reality of this text, any love that we do show others does not originate with us. In some sense, it's not our own love. It is ours, but where does it ultimately come from? It ultimately stems from God who has infected us with his own love. He's poured out his love on us. And therefore, for those who have truly experienced this love, it necessarily flows out in love for fellow believers. Which notice what this means then. This means that that, that if... If all genuine love is from God, at least in terms of how John is using that word, how he defined love two weeks ago, this this God-wrought, this God-achieved, self-sacrificial pursuit of the good of fellow believers, if, if all of that love only originates and comes from God, it can only be explained by, by a divine supernatural occurrence, This means that none of that love, no no love of that sort, actually exists outside of savingly knowing the God of love. That those disconnected from this true source of love, God himself, they will not be able to genuinely or at least rightfully possess love. If anything that exists in the world, anything that exists in the world that does resemble love, Therefore, it's only by God's common grace. The fact that God is showing grace to humanity. It's something of a ghost or a phantom of of genuine love because it lacks love's true grounding, which is God himself. And it's existing outside of love's natural habitat, we might say. It's disconnected from love's only proper source and basis in God. Which means then, in light of what John is writing to a church with false teachers looming in the background, and even in the passage immediately preceding this, where he gave a test of of who are actually these false teachers, this means that one of the reasons John gives this, this test of love is to help the church identify who the false teachers are. Those who are unsaved will be manifested by a lack of love for the church. They won't love the brothers and sisters in Christ. They won't love his people. They won't love the church. If you don't love the church, that is, a, that is a demonstration that you are not someone who has truly experienced God's saving love. And so John, one of the reasons John gives this to the church, I think, that he's writing to here, is to guard them from the false teachers. In other words, John not only tells them Whoever loves has been born of God. But remember, he says the negative, that whoever does not love does not know God. And so if you see those false teachers over there, and they don't love the people of God, they don't love the church, they don't love those who follow the apostolic gospel, that's evidence that they do not belong to God. In testing the claims of these false teachers, and trying to discern true Christianity from false Christianity, is do they love the community of God's people? 
when I was um, in Israel, we were walking on the east side of Jerusalem. Um, you got the wall. And if you've ever been to Israel, or um, I guess if you've seen a picture, maybe you'll have noticed, you could probably Google this, on the east side of Jerusalem, all the way up into Mount Olives, um, there's, there's uh, tombs, there's, uh, I'm blanking on the word, grave, like a grave site, there's like uh, tombstones everywhere and such, okay? And they're like above ground. There's all these like boxes of like, kind of like coffins, but not really. Um, they're all over, though. They just cover. Like, you, you look at Mount of Olives, and you just think it's this big white hill. But it's all these white coffins, okay? Which kind of reflects Jesus saying, on the outside, you're white coffins, right? Okay, so we're walking on the east side of Jerusalem. And we're looking at the wall, and our tour guide is talking and such. And all of a sudden, I'm with a group of, of people. I see this man who's, like, kind of, I don't know, like, poking around in the graves. Um... And he's, like, digging around and stuff. And I, I didn't, I'm like, I, this is a country I'm not used to. Maybe this guy is, like, there's something he's going on or whatever. Like, I don't know what this is all about. But all of a sudden, he comes up on the path, and he walks towards me, and he's got something in his hand. And I'm like, what on earth is that? And it's a skull. He's got a skull in his hand that I'm assuming he dug up out of one of the graves. This guy clearly, there's probably something not entirely there. And he's probably a little bit crazy. Um... But my friend who was with me, the guy approached us and tried to hand me the skull. And I'm like, no thanks, man. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass on that one today. Okay? And we got a picture of it. Like someone took a picture of this guy like, like holding this skull. And he just kind of like sat around with our group for a while and like walked around with us holding this skull. And no, no one knew what to do, right? Okay? Let's just say that is not something you forget. That is not a story you forget. And if you want proof of this, I have a picture of, I have that picture. I can show you. Um, Maybe you've experienced something like that in your life. Maybe as a teenager, you and your friends would do crazy stuff, and there's some story you can remember where you just, there's no way you're going to forget it. Okay, maybe you're talking to one of your friends once. You don't remember who was all there. And you say, you remember that time we, we did X or Y or Z? And they say, uh, maybe that kind of sounds familiar. I'm not sure. Like, maybe I was there. You'd be like, no, dude. Like, if you were there, you would remember Remember that time we saw the guy trying to hand us a skull? Ah, that doesn't, I don't know. I'm not sure if that, no, you would remember. Or maybe you've been to like some natural wonder like the Grand Canyon. Um, And you can talk to someone and and there's just something like, I've never been there, but from what I've been told, like you see a picture of it and it looks looks marvelous, right? But there's a different experience I've been told of actually being there that just takes your breath away. That you just, you can't really put into words, like pictures don't put into words. And if you were talking to someone and you could kind of tell they didn't have that experience, you would know, like, you haven't been there. Because you would know. Or maybe there's been a natural wonder that you've experienced in that way. For parents of young children, it may be uh, that when we're in our 80s and nursing homes and someone turns on Baby Shark, we will have flashbacks because we'll never be able to forget that. I think I saw a news story that there were security guards in a prison that were charged with some crime for torturing inmates with baby shark. Um, It's just gonna be like ingrained in our brains, right? The point being, there are things that we experience that we'll never forget. You walk away changed by them and you'd be able to walk up to someone and be like, yeah, if you had that experience, you you would know, you would know. It necessarily affects us. And I think this is sort of what John is saying. Listen, if, you, if you've been saved by God, 
if you've experienced the saving love of God, where you didn't, you didn't deserve any of it, it wasn't even on your radar. You weren't even looking for salvation. You didn't even know you needed salvation. Not that you love God, but that he loved you. He awoke you to your need for salvation. He awoke you to the offer of salvation. He caused you to see the glory of God in the death of Christ. A death for someone who, who by no means deserved it. Someone who was on their way to hell. And God has saved you. If you have experienced that, man, you're going to love other people. That love that you've been shown is going to flow out and you are going to love other people as a result. That sort of undeserved love is going to so define you that you, you can't not love other people as a result. This is what it means to know the God of love. This is what it means to have been born of God in, in John's categories, to be fathered by God, no longer fathered by the devil, but to actually be a child of God, the God of love. Just like John can say in chapter 1, that those who have fellowship with the God of light, they necessarily walk in the light. How can you walk in the darkness if you have fellowship with the God of light? How can we not love other people? How can we not love our brothers and sisters in Christ if we know the God of love? And so as we have come to know God's love for us in the gospel, we must love one another. Those who know the God of love will necessarily be known by their love for each other. As verse 11 summarizes for us, Beloved, if God has so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And this word ought, we ought, or whatever your translation has, it's a word that means to be indebted to someone. You owe them a debt. We owe a debt. Now, what would we expect God to say? If God has so loved us, we ought to love him. That's what you would expect John to say. God has shown us all this undeserved love. We, therefore, ought to love him. And certainly that's true. But what does John say? If God so loved us, we owe it to each other to love one another. It's as if God is saying to us, that debt you owe to me on account of my love for you, pay it to them. Pay it to your fellow Christians. He says, so in this way, beloved, if God has so loved you, or you, we could translate it in this manner, in this way, if God has loved us in this way, in that same way we ought to love one another. So what is the way that God has loved us that then we should demonstrate to others? Uh, one commentator, Van Nesty, gives some really good examples that I'm going to kind of recapture for us here. And I want us to think about this even in our own particular context right now, as Drew was talking about in his prayer, in a very tumultuous, divisive context of social media arguing, political division. What does it mean to love one another in this way, even now? That God loved us first. He's the one who sent, sent Christ. He did not wait for us to make the first move. And so, too, ours must be the initiating love. As we love others, ours must be the initiating love. He loved those who, it, who, who hated him. And so we cannot excuse ourselves from loving others because people are difficult. 
If the sinless God can love sinful people, then surely sinful people can love other sinful people. He loved those who were different than him. No human will ever be more different from us than we are from God. Our love must not be limited to those who are just like us. God's love accomplished what was best for us, even though it was not what we wanted at the time. His love continued when it was not convenient. His love perseveres even though we continue to wrong and offend him. He loved at extreme cost to himself. He, his, his love found concrete expression. It wasn't mere vague feelings or just words. But he also loved indeed, as 1 John says. And so too our love must be the same. Now, this, if we truly come to grips with this reality, this will feel like a rather daunting command. Wow, to love one another in, in the manner that God has loved us? I mean, we might, if, if, if we view love in a very watered-down way, we might feel like we're doing a decent job. But I, what, I, what I would argue, oftentimes, legalism, for example, has a low view of the law because it doesn't really feel the full extent of what we actually owe and what we ought to do. In a similar way, if we truly understand the weightiness of what, is, what God is actually calling us here to here, to love one another, we should feel that this is daunting. Like, I'm not able to do that. You're not able to do that. I'm not able to love you in the way that God has, has loved us. There's no way. It's crazy. But I want to reassure you, this passage is not merely saying that this is what we must do. This passage is also saying this is what we get to do. This passage is what we can do. Remember, what has John said? John has told us in this passage that we have come to know the living God. What, what does that assume? It assumes that a shift has occurred from, from being in a place of ignorance and blindness and darkness to having our, our minds illuminated and having a saving knowledge of the gospel. He has spoken of being born again, which of course assumes what? That we've been made alive, that we were at one point children of the devil, we were dead, and now we actually get to be bona fide children of the living and loving God. Believer, a drastic change has happened. If you just look at the law, you should feel intimidated. You should feel like, I got no chance. But remember what God has done. If you skip down to 1 John 5, 1 through 4, the very end of this section, John, John elaborates a bit more on, on what has taken place when he uses that word, born of God. The same, word that, same phrase that occurs here. He says, verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, if you're a believer in Jesus... You have been born of God. You have God as your father. You are a child of God. You've been made new. Verse 4, for everyone who has been born of God, look at this, overcomes the world. You've overcome that system of sinful rebellion. You're a new person. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. It's by trusting in Christ that we actually gain victory over that sinful power. In 1 Peter Chapter 1, verses 22 through 23, Peter uses a similar argument. Whether you want to turn there or just listen, this is what Peter says. 
he says in verse 22, he says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Okay, their truth is referring to the gospel. And by obeying it, it means we submit to the gospel, we believe the gospel, we trust in Christ. Notice, it's by trusting the gospel that our souls are purified, he says. And then notice what he says. You've purified your soul by believing the gospel for a sincere brotherly love. What was one of the purposes that God has saved us? One of the purposes, according to Peter, is that he saved us. He caused us to believe the gospel and be saved for a sincere brotherly love. That out of these pure hearts, we now show our heart to one another. We love one another. And so he says, love earnestly. Love another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you've been born again, it's the same logic, Peter says. You've been born again. You now have pure hearts and you're able to love one another. And so, believer, something miraculous has taken place in you if, if in fact, you are a believer. You've been made new. You've been born again. Your eyes have been opened. You know the living God. We've been enabled to see and experience the saving love of God, which is the very thing that turns us into lovers of others. And in answering how we might do this, how do I obey them that command to love one another, the argument and the logic of this text does not simply tell us to just try harder, to just muster up love, to just do it, to just grit your teeth and try to love one another. That although we certainly should love, love one another because, because it is the right thing to do, notice that John's underlying rationale that his primary motivation he gives us is that we are to love others because we have tasted of that love ourselves. It's the act of personally experiencing God's love that transforms us into lovers of others. His love flows through us towards others, you might say. And so if that's true, if the whole reason, the whole basis that we have be actually become lovers of God is because we've experienced God's love, I would argue it makes sense to say that the way we cultivate it then is by feasting more and more on God's love for us. That's the ongoing motivation. That's ultimately how we love one another more is by dwelling and just having jubilation in the love that we have from God. It's the logic of Ephesians 4 where, where Paul says, Forgive one another, how? As God in Christ has forgiven you. That as we reflect on the forgiving nature of our God, the loving nature of our God, it will bounce off of us like mirrors to others. And so when we, when we think of the, you know, the question, you know, what, what about when I struggle to love others? What's going on when I fail to love others? What's, what's happening? What, what, how do I diagnose that? Is it not often because we find others unlovable? We don't want to love them. They don't, they don't, it doesn't feel like they're deserving of our love. It's because we find them undesirable of our love. But what does John argue here? He argues that the love we've been shown by God itself is inexplicable according to any standards of what we deserved or what was desirable of love in us. Okay, God doesn't love us because we, the objects of his love, are somehow worthy of that love. 
We don't deserve God's love. God doesn't love us because of something in us that we're lovable. He loves us because of something in him. He is love. And so to truly have experienced this sort of undeserved love from God is to become so defined by that experience. This identity-shaping reality that I am someone who is loved by God undeservedly, that it obliterates any hurdles in loving others because of their unlovableness, supposedly. Why? Because we, the unlovable, have been shown undeserved love. And it causes our own love then to become reflective of God's love towards us. And so I want to close by asking, what would it look like if our church lived this, lived this out more and more? How is a passage like this in the Bible seeking to equip the church to be the church and to live out its mission? Why is this, poor, this passage important? First, internally, as we think about relating to one another, according to Ephesians 4, Love is actually how the church carries out its mission of building itself up towards maturity. In Ephesians 4, 16, Paul says that the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That it's actually by speaking the truth, how? In love love. That the way, if we're going to fulfill our mission of being the church and seeing one another built up, love is an essential ingredient. It's not like some extra seasoning you throw in. It's the foundation of who we are as a church. We're not going to be able to carry out our mission of seeking one another built up in the faith if we don't have love for one another, that glue that binds us together. Love is essential to what we are called to be and do as a church in our God-given and God-enabled project of seeing each other collectively built up. It's an essential vehicle. It's the highway that allows us to carry out this mission. Because one, not only does love stir us to serve one another and speak the truth, but it also creates the sort of community where we can speak the truth to one another. The sort of community where truth-telling can actually happen. Garrett Kell a pastor says this. He says, When churches are rich with love, it strengthens relational equity that supports hard conversations. If you know that I love you, I can say hard things to you. You know where it's coming from. Or as Richard Baxter, the Reformed Puritan, said, he said in his own words, If people can see you love them, if people can see that you love them, you can say anything to them. You can say the hard things. But also externally, as we think about our mission outside the church, of reaching people with the loss, of seeing the gospel advance among unbelievers, our love for one another is of missional significance because it gives testimony to and reflects a gospel of love. In John 13, 34 through 35, so same author here, this is John writing his gospel, He says, a new commandment, this is Jesus talking, though. he says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Sound familiar? Love as I have loved you. And then he says this in verse 35. Same sort of context. By this all people will know 
that you are my disciples if you love one another. In other words, love is of missional significance. We are a missionary people on mission to give testimony to the gospel of love. But the credibility of our witness is diminished when our community itself does not reflect the character of that gospel of love. In other words, to proclaim a God of love and a gospel of love that is a manifestation of love while we ourselves don't reflect that love, that absolutely undercuts the very message that we're seeking to share with others. In other words, if our works don't match our words, our message will be undermined. The messengers will be seen as incongruent with the message. And the claimed effect that we say the gospel has on people's lives of of transforming us, it will be seen as false if that effect doesn't show up in our own lives. But what if we as a people lived out that reality? In small group, I think it was two weeks ago, my small group was, we were talking about somehow we got on the topic of just the impending nature of our culture as our culture continues to secularize and feels at more and more odds with Christianity. And we were reflecting, all of us being parents of young kids, we were reflecting on the, the, in some ways, it could feel like the intimidating reality of raising a child in an increasingly hostile culture where you could, you could, you could start to wonder, like, when my kids get, get older, will they, you know, will they be, they hear all these ideas about Christians are bigoted and Christians are hateful because they don't agree with these people or they don't think this is okay or whatever. If you start to think about that long enough, it can, it can give you an anxiety attack, right? But what if, what if even notwithstanding those things, those things, those things can happen. But what if the church, and what if our own kids, just as an example, grow up in a church where they see a people that is so loving towards one another? They see that when their parents get sick, people are bringing them meals. They see that people are confronting them to try to help them grow. They see their parents doing the same thing, a commitment to the local church, a commitment to these people who are not blood family, but spiritual family. They see a people that sacrificially love one another, that have a love for the lost, that want to see the lost come to know saving faith. They don't hate the lost. They love the lost. And so when they're, when they're going around and they're growing up and they hear people saying Christians are bigoted, Christians are hateful people, those criticisms have nowhere to land on them because they say, that's not the experience I've had. I don't see that at all. Yes, my, my parents or these people, they don't agree with the surrounding culture. Okay. But to say they're bigoted and hateful? What if the culture, as it increases in the secular or the, the sexual revolution, and we start to see not only as we are now, but increasingly so marriages crumbling all around us, Kids without, without a, a stable home. And our kids are in public school and they have cl- kids in classrooms with them who are, who are coming from very difficult home lives. And no matter what people want to say about our view of sexuality, for example, they nonetheless can look at the church and be like, they're getting something right. Because that community stands out differently. Families love one another. The church loves one another. It's, in other words, what if the church can create a sense of plausibility structure, a sense that gives the way we live our lives gives credibility to the message we believe so that no matter what hostility comes our way, it's not going to stick. 
because our love for one another outshouts it. Our love is of missional significance, and our love for one another can adorn a gospel of love. And so as we move to the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper is a way that God continues to manifest his love among us. As this passage says, God has manifested his love in the person of Christ. Very literally, Jesus showed up physically for us. But not only so, Jesus then gave us this symbol, this rite that we practice weekly, where God continues to manifest his love through the very symbols of bread and juice, bread and wine. It takes the original manifestation of God's love, and what the Lord's Supper does is it takes that, that cross event and it translates it to us constantly in the presence every Sunday. It makes its reality ever present before our eyes, ever present in our mouths, and thereby it bolsters our faith as we continue to experience in it the God of love. In the Lord's Supper, we remember God's love for us, which we pray will then flow out in our love for one another. And I'll also say this, as we're in a political season where everyone around us is dividing and spewing hate, notwithstanding our differences, and I'm not even trying to say that those differences don't matter. Some of us may be doing things here politically that are wrong. Some of us may be sinning. We don't even have to assume that we're all right. But what does the gospel assume? The gospel doesn't assume we're perfect. What does the Lord's Supper, the gospel in the Lord's Supper, assume? It doesn't assume we're perfect. We don't take the Lord's Supper because we have it all together. And so notwithstanding any of our differences, even significant differences, even areas where we need to grow, and we're currently failing in that, we can come together and say, you know, all those differences can fall to the side. That's my fellow brother. That's my fellow sister. And we partake of the same gospel. What Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11 was that one of the things the Lord's Supper pictures is not only have I come to experience God's salvation, but it also shows that we have one bread. I think the Zoom just shut down, Dan, just so you know. Um, just as we have one bread, it shows in one cup, it shows that we have unity. We all share the same gospel. So my point in this is that as we partake of the Lord's Supper today, notwithstanding any differences we have with one another, that are emphasized and highlighted during this season, may it be a reminder that we are all one people together and what we have in common is profound and of eternal weight. Maybe the battery died or something. And I think my bread fell out. So, <laughs> so I'm going to lead you guys. Oh no, it got smooshed on the bottom of my jar. There it is. All right. COVID. Okay. Paul tells us this. He says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, and he said, Believer, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. And believers, as often as we eat and we drink, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.